So tonight I want to talk about effort in the first beginning. Uh, and the Buddha said there was no such thing as the first beginning. But now I'm going to talk about it. So we'll see what happens. Actually, I was reading uh, a book, which I can't remember the name. But in any case, in it, it said, uh, it gave this fact. And this, uh, this fact seemed to me to be one of the most amazing facts that I had ever in science encountered. And that was that life began 3.8 billion years ago once. It had one beginning. As I thought about life, I always thought it started in the around the same time in different swamps and whatever the goo of the time was and that it fostered life from different ponds and brooks and whatever. But it turns out, genetically they can so prove it, I guess, is that it began once and all of animal and plant life sprang forth from that first beginning and the only time it's ever been, uh, ever began. So I I find that to be an extraordinary fact that somehow we haven't, I never heard before. Because if we look at it dharmically, it, it sort of takes shape around that. Because from my perspective, what occurred was that awareness took form. It doesn't mean that awareness began, and I think that's what the Buddha was alluding to about first beginnings, is that consciousness doesn't have a beginning. In fact, it never evolves. It stays absolutely the same. It's the one thing that has no evolution to it. The content of consciousness evolves and changes, and but consciousness itself, awareness, has no evolutionary factor. Therefore, the awareness that was there then is the awareness that is here now. Although we've divided into six and a half billion people, including countless species and etc., etc. And yet there is this sense in each of us, isn't there, that we are more unified than our appearances would indicate. Now, what happened, I thought, I think, was that over the evolutionary expanse of 3.8 billion years ago, as awareness divided into forms that then adapted to the particular environment of plant or animal life that it was then associated with, it grew in distinctively different ways. And then we, in our adaptation, came to focus upon the appearances of differences rather than what we had as a unified, uh, as rather than the unified consciousness that we all hold. And so through the reinforcement and investment in the differences between you and me or this and that or this species and that or plant and animal, grows all of the ways that we hold ourselves in distinction and comparison and evaluation and judgment and measurement of 
all the different people within the species and all the different animals outside the species. And as the adaptation grew, we took that focus on distinction because that's what's obvious. Appearance is what's obvious. The awareness doesn't isn't in form. It's not, you can't see it. So it's not quantifiable. And so it's released from my focus. And what, I, what remains is the colors and shapes and distinctive patterns that I have left to judge and to evaluate. And so as we evolved as a species, and I don't claim to be an anthropologist, but it seems to make sense, that at some point we kept uh, building boundaries to areas that we thought perceived boundaries where we thought we were in danger. And one of those places where we were running half naked on the Serengeti Plains and you see a lion coming at you, you say, okay, lion, tree, I've got to get put distance between you and me and get to that. And so we begin to recognize danger externally. And then, because we are a communal society, we began to recognize danger inwardly. That is, we began to see lions where we, where there weren't any. But we saw people who were more accomplished than us or who were more violent than us and who were, who were this or that. And we started, in a protracted kind of way, setting boundaries in the same way that we did with the lions. And each time we set a boundary, and may I say that those boundaries, external and internal, is a artificial boundary, where the skin stops and where the external environment begins is an artificial boundary. The sense of body and mind is an artificial boundary. The sense of mind has been fractured yet more so that there is the persona and the shadow, the part of our minds that we don't like and the part that we do, and a boundary has been placed in that area as well. And each time we form a boundary, you can feel us getting more cornered in what is left to consider as ours. And so now, after 3.8 billion years, not only is all of the species of animal and flora and fauna externalized to us, but also we're externalized to other people within our species and even to ourselves as an individual. And we've cornered ourselves. We've backed ourselves in. And so Dharma, you might say, is working this thing in reverse. Is looking at the places where we have become defensive in, in protection and proving to ourselves conclusively that we don't need to protect ourselves from that anymore, that basically we're not in harm's way. And so very slowly we began to develop a unified consciousness by releasing the boundaries that we've imposed within our own consciousness, within our own body, within the environment, within 
and for between other species and animals. And the fact is that the consciousness, as I said, was never divided. It has remained unified. The brain, of course, is specific to the individual. But the consciousness or the awareness is not. And that is the reason that we feel something intuitively, something inside of ourselves. That we are much more connected than our minds would portray. In fact, our minds have not learned to see in terms of unification. It's learned to see in terms of differences in order to keep that sense of protective security that appearances provide, and so that I can tell you from a lion, ready and able for me to be able to run. And so it is an organ that has evolved for that purpose and for that intention, specifically to reference differences. And we take that organ to be the truth of what life is. And we have lost touch with the unified consciousness. We have lost touch with that which is interspecies, interlife, intereverything. Because if you go back 13.5 billion years ago, you come to the Big Bang where everything flew away, flew apart in a single moment. Where everything was together. All things. So the unification even goes back further than that. And is more complete and total than just life versus inanimate life. So... We find ourselves in a rather interesting predicament. We've sharpened the tool of our discriminating attention so that it's very refined and so that we have uh, sort of entrenched a particular sense of, we have a disposition to every part of ourselves and to everything we see. And we have a, a very fast a limbic system that fosters fear and uh, adrenaline action that increases a kind of protective, almost biological protection from things. But we don't question it. It's the evolution of the species. But what is it that holds all of this together? What's the glue <laughs> that keeps this thing from flying apart. What is that sense in ourselves, that intuitive sense in ourselves that things are much more together than we perceive? Well, if we look down a few inches to the heart, you begin to sense it's more of a visceral sense that this, that there is something. Um, very present, very available, and very whole and complete. And so we then have to work against an enormous momentum of biology to get this thing squared away. And we're up against literally the collective content of all those 
billions of years of working in just the opposite direction. So there's a tremendous sense of conditioning around our individuation and the labeling of that individuation called I, me, and mine. Okay, so that's as far away from, that's as far out of science I go. All right, so now we're, but it makes sense to me. I don't know whether it makes, you know, I don't know whether it's true, but it's, but it feels right. So, and I've probably got some of the facts wrong, but it doesn't make any difference because the basic, the basic way we're programmed is explained in that way. So now, here we are, we come with a, a, a tremendous momentum to perceive ourselves in some kind of contemptuous way because we're looking at ourselves in comparison to the other sitters in the room and we've always done that, we've always evaluated because that discerning quality is within us is so sharp and so um, alive because of all the years that we've put into that form of conditioning that we're going to sit down and that's what's going to come up, judging and comparison, evaluation and and all of that, all of the things that are going through each of our minds as we come here for this week-long sitting. Now, this is important. We can either work in coordination with the unified awareness or we can work in coordination with the hardened conditioning of our distinction. Our tendency is, our knee-jerk response is to work in accordance with our differences. Because that's where we've always been. That's what we've been encouraged culturally to do and that's what we have individually done in our schoolwork and preparation and all of that. And so when we come to our spiritual uh, orientation, that's what comes out of us, is that need to kind of improve myself, to be better spiritually than I think I am now and to almost competitively look across and around the room to see how I'm doing in relationship to everyone else who's sitting. That's kind of the way that we present our map of, of spiritual progress. Or according to some text and what it tells us we need to do in the progression of our steps and deepening of our this or that. But, the question remains whether our effort is in alignment with that original beginning or is it 3.8 billion years later after all the distinction has have been made, are we now focusing and reinforcing the effort of all of those years of differences, of individuation? I see, I think that's an important question. And however I got to that place, whether my science was wrong, or it doesn't make any difference because that's basically what each of us find ourselves in. Do I want to self-improve? I'll put it more bluntly and perhaps more um, accessibly. Do I want to self-improve? Because we think in terms of self-improvement, because self-improvement is a measurement, a quantifiable measurement that allows me to know that I'm gaining something. Or do I want to move back towards unification, a unified consciousness? Which is not about self-improving at all. Because whatever effort we stake out 
to be, the way we're going to be practicing, whatever effort, whatever way we infuse and focus our energy is going to have one or the other of those as its direction. And we may think we hold a view of unification, of interconnectedness, but practice individuation, distinctiveness, competitively, aggressively, unkindness, unkindness. Or we can look at unification. Unification itself has a whole... You can feel the vocabulary pour from the word unification. Well, obviously, it's connected. Since it's connected and in relationship to a unified whole, it must be holistic, it must be kind, caring, compassionate, considerate, patient. Because the opposite of that are all the measurements by which I know myself different from you. And so, once we get onto this path, we we really have to understand what direction we're going in. And as the Buddha said, holding the view of a unified consciousness out in front of us and then practicing in alignment with what that word implicates. What's the implication of unified consciousness? It means we have to reconnect with things because any act of separation is an act of further division, further subdividing out yet again this world of multiple forms and species and people, etc., etc. See, I like to make it very clear that what we, we, in the energetic way, we then move the way that we actually start working the practice, the sort of the guts, the, the, the down home, you know, get dirty actual work that we're doing to unify our consciousness. We have to be very clear what we're doing each step of the way, whether we're actually bringing things together and connecting or whether we're creating more distance. So I would like to propose four words that I think work in cooperation with a unified consciousness that I call the four R's of wise effort. And these R's, especially the first R is not going to be, is going to be known to you, but I just want to, to reinforce them. Now these R's, let me just, I'll go through them uh, just in name, is relax, release, relinquish, and rejoin. Now the sense of me, which is that predominant conditioning to form further divisiveness and division, the sense of me is where is the hub of that 3.8 billion years of division, the sense of me, the sense of I, works to make you think that you're getting what you want, but actually you're reinforcing it so that it further subdivides. And it's very sneaky. 
It's very sneaky because we live very at ease with the patterns that we have lived with our whole life, which are all driven by that sense of self, that momentum of division and separation called I. And under we live under the leadership of I. And so under the leadership of I, my knee-jerk response towards doing something is like a problem. I need to get over it. It's interesting. My wife and I have very different ways of handling problems. She sits down and she wants to tell me about the problem. So she starts talking to me about the problem. Her intention is to connect with me, not for a solution, but just to meet around this thing called a problem. The meeting is what's important for her. Me, I'm trying to get over the problem. So I sit down with her and I give her three things that she could do. (laughs) The meeting, just biologically I can see it in myself, the meeting is not what's important, you know, as a male, that's my job is to, you know, accomplish and move on. <laughs> yeah, and so we, we really speak different languages. But I'm learning. <laughs> and so it, what's interesting, though, is that as we um, sit down, I see the opportunity to either create more distance between myself and my wife by giving solutions because the solutions really don't connect us at all. Or I can I can go out of context and out of character for me, connect with what she wants to do, and then the, the solution becomes sort of a byproduct of the meeting. If there's a so it's very interesting that this is to me that this is a disposition. Now, I want to read something that the Buddha said about, um, maybe I can read it from back here without my glasses. (laughs) When he said that if you practice from the wrong, with the wrong, in the wrong direction, what he calls unwise view, not from unification, but from division, essentially, here's what he says. He says, monks, for a person of unwise view, whatever bodily, verbal, or mental conduct he or she undertakes in accordance with that view, and whatever volitional intentions, aspirations, wishes, or formations he or she engenders in accordance with that view, all lead to what is undesirable, unwanted, and disagreeable, to harm and suffering for oneself and for others. So we better get it right. Right? Because we will just keep forming more boundaries within ourselves even as we think we're becoming boundaryless. And that's why there is such a seedy side to spirituality. Because you can have tremendous empowered samadhi but use it absolutely adharmically. And it's so enamoring because as an individuation, we would love to have that because who wouldn't want muscles going up and down their samadhi spine? (laughs) And so we get allured by our individuation but ultimately leads to suffering and harm because it is um, professed as a form 
of what's called unification, but really the intention is just the opposite. And many, many, many Dharma scenes, scenes and teachers don't even realize that they are being governed by their wrong view. They think that it's not, often it's not malicious, but it's there. You can feel it when you understand, is this person talking in a unified way or are they talking in terms of exclusivity? Because unification is not exclusive. How can a unified way be exclusive? Any dharma, please listen because some of you have been embedded in some of this exclusive talk. Any talk that is at all exclusive is a dharmic, period. And the teacher may think that he or she is doing you a good service, well-intended service, towards making you exclusive, but not so. And you begin to develop, see there's a, there's a spiritual logic there's a spiritual, rational logic that you can... Once you understand the way and you understand how the mind works, it's not logic, intellectual logic. It's spiritual. Um, it makes sense. It's just you begin to see, well, of course not. How could anything that mentions that the way you become unified, you first have to become exclusive. How can that possibly work? So that's out. That's gone. Check that one off. And any means that professes to, that professes the direction of unification that is itself self-mutilating or harsh, check it off. Because if the means doesn't, isn't in perfect alignment with the ends we seek, then it's worse than wrong, it's tragic. So what does effort look like? What does effort look like when we know our way? And each of us know whether what I'm saying is true or not. You don't know, not because of me, but because of you. Inside of you, there is that unified consciousness. It's never gone. It's never been changed. And if you listen from that, you will know whether what I'm saying is true. If you listen from your mind, then you'll think of it completely differently. And that's why you can hear, when you hear the truth, your head may not physically not, but inside there's this, yes, of course, <laughs> affirmation, yeah, of course, of course. So what does it look like, you see? So now when we start practicing every stroke, every thought, every intentionality, every movement holds a particular view and disposition to our life. And we have to line up actions of body, speech, and mind, which is the Eightfold Path, in perfect alignment to the view of unified consciousness. Or else we just we go astray. So without further ado, let me get to some of these four R's. The first one we have talked about considerably, and that's relaxation. You see, relaxation, just listen to these words in relationship to a perfect alignment of unification. 
Relaxation doesn't ask anything from you except the release of the tension and resistance that you have, that you have. And therefore it's asking a release. It's asking a surrender of the resistance of the boundary you formed to things. To yourself, to other. And therefore, relaxation is not an actual doing. It's a releasing of the tension of the misdirection of our 3.8 billion years. And so relaxation is at the hub of this realignment. And you can feel it. It's amazing once you say, okay, that makes absolute sense. You see spiritual sense. It makes, okay, so let me release the tensions within my body and mind. And whoa, suddenly you see, if you don't indulge in the relaxation, if you make the relaxation an ends, then you'll lean into relaxation and it will cover over the unified consciousness. That's how how it works. You lean into anything of body or mind, it covers it. But if you let the relaxation move through you without leaning into it and indulging it, then what springs forth is the consciousness. Because we've been hiding from it, from the tensions that relaxation created the boundaries and the tensions and therefore we couldn't see it. We couldn't perceive it through that tension. Relax the tension and we're back to day one. It's the spring morning, June 12th, 3.8 billion years ago in a glob of goo. So relax, relax, good yoga, right? Relax, see the areas of tension, relax into those areas of tension. Because the mind, the yoga, the union, the union. All right, so that's the first R. I could go on and on, I have written chapters in my books around this, so Buy the book. <laughs> Relax. Second, the release. Release. Now I have to check to see what I'm, how I defined release. So you have to give me a moment. <laughs> Just one of those things when you start using words, you forget how you define them. Release. We release the need to control the outcome. Okay, wow, that's a big one. Now you be, because you begin to see that there's a certain tension that the sense of self and all of its momentum and all of its conditioning and all of its habit patterns and all of its need to distinguish itself, which is way, the way it's been working since day one, need to distinguish itself and all of that, has at its heart of hearts the need to control, the need to sort of put its imprint upon life. And so it leans with the the need to control. It needs to control outcomes. It needs to control situations. And you can see in many of you, if not all of you here, myself included, that enormous tendency to move into a room and try to influence the situation in some way. Never even realizing what the situation is. We haven't even opened ourselves up to fully understanding what the situation is. We haven't received it sufficiently to even know what we're trying to control. We lead so 
habitually with the attempt to control and influence that that's, it's just an almost an automatic. And because if we can control something, then we have power over it. And that makes it safe. And from the fear-induced way I look with my need for distinctiveness and measurement, I am being, I, the whole thing is being forced through the back white ground, background white noise of fear, of insecurity. And so this effort to control situations, control yourself, control what mind states will be arising, control your definition, to control everything. We, we try to control at every boundary we have a border control. And so, okay, now, what if I, it's like, what is it like, first of all, I want to know what it's like to be out of control. I like that, okay? I better know what it's like to be out of control, because if I'm going to relinquish control, that's what's going to happen to me. So the first thing I do is to look how I am when I'm out of control, like when I lose my car keys. Or you forget something. Or you don't have the manipulating force to change the situation in some way. Or you don't get your way. Or you don't get your way. That's a good one. How do you, how does it feel inside? Especially if you have the credentials to get your way and everybody should be listening to you. Which some of you do. See that? So, what's the opposite of the need to control? It's interesting. It's faith, and faith is relinquishing the control. It's very interesting when you look at it. We don't control anything. We control the future, but we can never control the present. Like I sit here and I say, "Oh, it's too hot in here." I think I'll turn on the fan. In the moment, I think it's too hot in here. I have no control over the heat whatsoever. The future expectation is I will do something to the temperature of the fans and thereby make it nicer for me. But in the moment, there's no control whatsoever. And we're always at the complete vulnerability of what it is that's happening, of the moment, of reality. But the mind builds its momentum of distinction and control and security towards a future in which I can then empower this moment to be different than it is at the moment, at the, in, in this moment. So it's always a future orientation. And faith is living with reality as it's being manifested rather than the need to try to control it in any way at all. It's moving. For 3.8 billion years, form has moved. Look. It's moved. I dare say it hasn't been because of you or me. It's going somewhere. Why don't we just join it? Rather than try to retract it. Like we know where it really needs to go. Yeah, we really know where it needs to go, don't we? Look at the disposition of the planet. We know right where it needs to go. 
Okay, so relax, release. Relax. I'm trying to get this done in our time allotment for a talk. It may go over a little bit, but we'll see here. Here's a, a good example of of the release of control. A friend of mine, I've told this story before, so you may have known it. A friend of mine was uh, driving her three children, all you know, very young, maybe one preschooler and one two elementary school kids, like let's say five, six, and seven. She was driving down uh, the interstate, deadlocked in traffic, and late to get her kids to school and late for her own appointment or something. But the whole thing was in complete disarray. Kids are screaming in the back seat or crying or playing or poking or something. Horns are honking. It's hot. You get the scene. And she reaches her boiling point and then some Dharma click happens and she says, I will always be in this situation. This is this situation. I will never be outside of this car. Now, you say that. Well, I say that and you think, of course she's going to be outside of that car. No. As soon as she starts thinking when I get outside of this car, the hell of being in the car comes full bearing, doesn't it? To release the fact that she's ever going to be outside of this car, she releases the control to make it any way different. You just wait. I'm going to... I'm going to call the mayor. I'm going to, I, you know, all of that. All of that. The influencing aspect of it has died. And then she said it was completely tolerable. But only when we have lost control within the situation, completely surrendered our control. That's not a lingering resignation. That is not a resentment. That is an ending, a surrendering. That is what faith is. Will you just let go? Will you release? Not for an alternative reason. Not to just, okay, I'll be patient. Not to try to impose a different form. We don't realize how absolute faith must be. Faith isn't a hedge. You can't hold 1% out for regaining your power. It's total. I am powerless. Your will, not my will. And then it works. You see? Okay. Relax, release, relinquish. We relinquish everything that is inauthentic. Now some of you have built in sensors of inauthenticity. Some of you are very good at it. And the better you are, the better you are. (laughs) Because that's what guides your intentionality. And if you can just keep feeding, you know when something's authentic and inauthentic, and you know it within yourself. And you can't tolerate it. You can't, at some point, a spiritual heart can't tolerate inauthenticity. It just won't go there. It's like the worst possible. It's just imprisonment. So I'm not going there. 
and suddenly you start seeking out. And it's only that thin cord that we have that ties us to our own honesty that is the salvating, salvation for us all. Because that lines up to sincerity. And sincerity at some point will check out whether what I'm doing up here is matching my deepest intentionality and view of where this thing needs to go. And if it isn't, even if I've given away all my money and sworn allegiance to my guru, and still, I get up one day and say, I'm heading out, see you later. This doesn't work for me. And out you go. Because your integrity above anything, it has to be the most important thing to you. And when it doesn't ring true, you can live with it for a while, but then it becomes intolerable and you leave. And it's true also internally in you. You know where you're lying to yourself. You know where you're not doing what you know you need to do. And it may take a word like, are you indulging? Oh, wait a second here. Let me check it out. That word rings true. Yeah, I am indulging. I may not want to give it up quite yet, but I now at least know the bells have gone off. See? And so this honing in on what's inauthentic is a tremendously important um, spiritual ability. The highest, I give it the highest ability. And so we think, okay, then you can only face yourself lying to yourself for so long before you go, okay, come on. That's up here. You see? So we relinquish our inner authenticity. Very important. Finally, rejoin. Relax, release, relinquish, and rejoin. I love rejoining because there's nothing we need to do to rejoin. We just have to let our heart sort of lead the way. Our heart or the awareness of it just knows its way. And so caring knows its way. Kindness knows its way. And so if I can just bring forth the courage, because it does take courage, because there's a vulnerability to caring and a vulnerability to kindness. Uh, and it's we often lace kindness with a kind of... Um, neurotic need to serve and all of that has to be cleaned up before we can really understand that the path of the heart is really directing us to our own welfare as well as the welfare of others. That it doesn't downgrade ours to get to the welfare of the other. That we bring it all together. It's all We all line it up together. And rejoining is the willingness to rejoin whatever wherever we have uh, taken an opposition because that's where we're not joining. So wherever, whatever mind state internally is arising, we join it. We start with the join. We join it. Okay, let's just rejoin this thing. Rejoin my anger. Rejoin my fear. Connect with it. We start there. And slowly we begin to discern how we've made the whole world view as if it's out there through our projected for our projection onto it. And so as we start rejoining bits of ourselves internally, the vision of the world becomes more unified externally. 
And it's not as everything gets welded together in some kind of homogenized state. It's not that. It's just that the sense of space and distance between form doesn't separate. Because the forms aren't being delineated as being separate from anything. And so you you get a view or a sense of oneness from this willingness to follow this journey of rejoining. Because that is the spiritual journey. And wherever I feel irritated because some sound is happening, that's the momentum of all those years of further distinction and turning away and aversion and separating and isolating. And I don't do that anymore. Even though there's tremendous momentum to hear a sound that's annoying and you think, oh, well, let's go out and kill all the crickets. (laughs) You don't do it. You even rejoin with the irritation that would have led to that action at an earlier, more primal state of our maturity. And you rejoin even with the opposition, the statement of opposition, even with disappointment, even with impatience. There is nothing that the mind can bring up in which rejoining isn't the word of choice. So that's it. I hope that feels absolutely spiritually integritous. Because then you know it's true. You know it's true. And then you know your way. And That's it. The game is essentially over when there is that compatibility of view, intentionality, which Ron will speak about tomorrow, effort, total alignment. You see? There's no part of you fighting for survival here. And so then the primal state, the primordial state that has existed undisturbed, unaltered, untouched since time immemorial, long before Forever. The forever. Which is why there is no first beginning. Thank you all.